the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's fun. It's interesting. It's weird. It's whatever you want it to be. Thanks for listening. Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, Kyle, your host here. Episode number 15, coming right at you right now. It's good to be back another week in the land of podcasting. It's 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 a weird feeling now. Um, like I talked about before, you know, I started this podcast back in, technically, I think the first episode premiered in September. Um, I'd have to look it up exactly, but I think it was early to mid-September when I put out episode one on Teddy Roosevelt, and I had been working on the podcast um, pretty heavily even in August, both, you know, getting it set up and uh, getting things planned and, and just kind of figuring out, like, the format I wanted to do and this and that. All of that took place under the the giant shadow of trying to finish college, trying to finish my nursing degree, um, my second bachelor's degree, uh, I've done college before, but and that's the reason why I'm doing this show because my first college degree is in history, and history is something I'm it's very near and dear to my heart. So you know, it only took me ten years to figure out something useful to use that degree for. Um, but yeah, uh, the show, uh, as long as it's been on, has been something that is is always had that that looming shadow of trying to finish up nursing school over the top of it. So, you know, when I first started, I would record, and I recorded a few extra things here and there so that I could concentrate on studying stuff in between time. And that was the case literally all the way up, every episode, every bonus episode, all the way up to last week's episode, episode 14, which, by the way, Nellie Bly became my now most downloaded episode after the Hedy Lamar episode used to hold that title. So thank you everyone for listening. If you're one of my current listeners, if you're a new listener to the show, thank you very much. I think a lot of people popped in on that episode. So uh, if you like that, get ready for more of that shit. That's mostly what it is. So so anyhow, you know, this is the first episode I've been recording now where the the looming thought that, oh my God, this is such a waste of time. I should be doing homework. I should be doing this and that and not this hobby, this sort of passion project. I shouldn't be doing this dumb thing when I've got so many other important things I have to do. I can finally record an episode now where, and episodes, I should say, I can record an episode and more episodes to come in the future where I don't have to think about that. Now, obviously, I still have to think about taking the giant uh, board test for nurses here, which I'll probably end up doing um upcoming here in mid to late January at some point. But besides that thought, all I really have to do is work. So I'll work 
I can do this. Um, and then once I pass my boards and stuff, I can go to work at the hospital that I got hired at and continue doing that and stuff. So there's plenty of stress to be had in the upcoming days. But for the most part, I think it, it's a really good feeling to be able to just like just exhale a little bit and be able to record an episode, not have to worry that I'm not doing homework or that I'm procrastinating or any sort of shit like that. So it's awesome. Just wanted to let everyone know um, that the feeling is good and that I'm super thankful, obviously, for all those who have been listening to us. We've passed 1,300 downloads as of late, so we're we're still making it happen. I've just looked and I put over 10 hours of spoken word content onto the internet to, to forever float around in the ether. So when aliens come by two, three, four, or 5,000 years from now and they're looking through the archives of stuff, my stupid podcast will be in there for them to listen to. And hopefully, aliens, if you're listening right now, uh, I hope you learned something about weird, interesting human beings in the past. So, hey, shout out from shout out from ancient Earth history. What up? Anyhow, today's episode is about a a really interesting young woman. Uh, not super historical because a lot of the stuff that has happened with her and the reason why she's so cool is super recent history. I remember seeing her for the first time on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and we're going to play a little clip of, of her speaking with him um, in the episode here. But her name is Malala Yousafzai, and she's she's... Super, super interesting. She's a really young woman from Pakistan who you know went through a whole, a whole ordeal, but but despite that ordeal, she came out with it, you know, stronger and and better person because of it. And and she just got a really interesting story. So without further ado, let's talk a little bit about in episode fifteen of the podcast, Malala Yousafzai. Yousafzai, uh, very much by far the youngest person that we may ever cover on this show. Uh, I'm not entirely certain about that because you never know, but compared to almost every single person that's been a subject of this show, uh, most of whom uh, are long dead, some not as long dead, but most are, are, are already passed away and, and, and elderly, uh, Malala Yousafzai was born in 1997, a very young person. She's still alive today and kicking, by the way, but uh, by far, you know, one of the youngest people born near the uh, near the millennium. She was born in the Swat region of Pakistan, which is in uh, the north part of the country, kind of near the uh, Afghani border, and 
extremely mountainous. Um, some would know the Swat region sort of as the uh, the Switzerland of the the Middle East into the Asian part of the continent. Uh, so super mountainy, super you know pretty when it came down to that sort of thing. But uh, she is fluent in Pashto, which is a a, a really popular language in Afghanistan. Uh, she speaks fluent English, as you'll see here pretty uh, soon when I play the clip from her interview with Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. And she also speaks Urdu, which is uh, a well-spoken, highly spoken language in Pakistan as well. So in addition to being you know, just amazing in general, she's also extremely intelligent. And that's because she was raised by uh, a father who was a poet, um, an educational activist. He owned the school. He ran a chain of private schools um, in their region. So his or her uh, father was extremely well educated, and he passed that that longing for knowledge, that sort of curiosity, and that quest for being an educated person down to his daughter Malala. So she starts becoming something of an important figure in the region in 2008. Now, mind you, 2008, for a lot of us, and especially those of us listening who are a little bit older than she is, 2008 doesn't seem, you know, like a, a terribly long time ago. And, and most of us, even in 2008, were well into adulthood. Um, I, myself, in 2008 was 23 uh, years old, so very easily, you know, basically past even my first college stage. In 2008, there was a man named Amr Ahmed Khan of BBC Urdu, so this would be like the BBC's satellite wing in Pakistan. They wanted to figure out a way to to give coverage to, at that time, uh, the Taliban's growing influence in SWAT. Now, the Taliban typically operated almost completely and utterly in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan borders Pakistan, and we won't get into the extremely complex um, you know, political politicalness of the region uh talking about who's supporting who you know did pakistan's forces uh support the taliban even though they denied supporting the taliban or al-qaeda or any of that stuff that's all maybe for another show but even then i i would hate to even really get into that because my knowledge is mediocre and scant at best i would say i know just enough to understand pretty much what's going on but not a ton beyond that and it's a really complex and, and difficult subject anyway to preach but anyhow in 2008 this guy uh, Ahmed Khan of the BBC Urdu is looking for a way to sort of embed themselves into into the SWAT region of Pakistan because they see that the Taliban influence is getting bigger and bigger here and they figured hey we should go to some of these schools and we should have one of the kids because this is, you know, 2008 now. So now YouTube has become a thing and blogs are a lot bigger and, and, and just everything is just, you know, the Internet is exploding in terms of the, the amount of information and the reach that you have uh, in society. So this Ahmed Khan of, of BBC Urdu wants to go down and, and, and actually get, you know, uh, uh, one of these young kids opinions about, you know, in this school about, you know, what do you feel like what do you think of of what's happening right now like blog about your life you know the Taliban's doing their thing blog about what you think well it, it was a much more uh difficult task for for our man Ahmed Khan to to get anyone to do because I don't know if you've heard but the Taliban is a super fundamentalist uh militant wing 
of uh, Sunni Islamic uh, uh, Muslim ruling sort of Sharia law type of uh, Islamic movement. And that's about as far as I'm going to take that information because although I don't think my listenership base is really terribly politicized, like once you start talking about, you know, Islamic extremism or anything else like that, you know, it just starts to become a whole ordeal. So we'll just say it's the Taliban. I mean, everybody's heard of the Taliban. So the Taliban is moving into the region. And because of their militant authority and because of their very strict, you know, interpretation of of a sort of code, which typically in that code, uh, women are very much put under the boot of, of those around them. And really anybody who would dare speak out against that particular rule has the boot put down on them. Basically, everybody that Ahmed Khan is asking to do this in their school doesn't want to do it, mostly because the parents are afraid of retaliation from the Taliban if the Taliban were to find out. Well, Malala's father decides, well, maybe we can, you know, my daughter's really, really smart. She's really sharp and intelligent. Maybe she'll want to do it. And Malala agrees. Malala at this time is only 11 years old. 11. The previous volunteer that was going to do it, then her parents yanked her out, was 15 years old. So you have just, I mean, I can't even remember what the fuck I was doing as an 11-year-old. Definitely not living under, you know, constant fear of being blasted in the face from some extremist militant arm of, of a religion and, you know, being asked to write a blog about it. I'm sure I was just being a dumbass somewhere doing some dumbass shit. But at 11 years old... Uh, Malala decides to agree to become BBC Urdu's blogger in the region to help them sort of understand what is going on with the Taliban influence in the SWAT region. Now, she uses a pseudonym, which obviously you would because you fear retaliation. So she goes under the pseudonym Gol Makai, which is a Urdu word for cornflower. Um, she starts her first blog post then in January of 2009, and she goes on and on and on for a while. And I'll read one of her entries here super duper quick before we move on with the story. But to quote Malala in uh, 2009 from January, quote, I had a terrible dream yesterday with military helicopters and the Taliban. I have had such dreams since the launch of the military operation in SWAT. My mother made me breakfast and I went off to school. I was afraid going to school because the Taliban had issued an edict banning all girls from attending schools. Only 11 out of 27 pupils attended the class because the number decreased because of the Taliban's edict. My three friends have shifted to Peshawar, Lahore, and Ralapindi with their families after seeing this edict. So, I mean, extremely well written and worded by by an 11-year-old, first of all. But you can just see kind of how she feels about what's happening. Now, mind you, she was raised by an educator, so she takes education very strongly to heart. So it hurts her to see that the Taliban putting out this edict saying, hey, we don't want girls in particular to be able to go to school at all. It hurts her because that is her life. She wants to learn. She wants to be a part of education. And this new force in the region, the Taliban, is now putting this sort of this this sort of uh, she says the edict a bunch of times the edict down that says she can't do it they set that edict out on the 15th of january 
in 2009. So around the same exact time that she put that blog post out. Um, at the time, up to the point where they put the edict out, the Taliban had already blown up more than 100 girls' schools. And uh, it, it was just, it's just a whole thing with artillery fire and shelling going on every single day around the neighborhood. You can only imagine what an 11-year-old feels when this is all going on at the same time around her and she's being asked by a really big well thought of news organization to write notes about what's going on she goes on later on uh that month at the 24th of january in frustration quote it seems that it is only when dozens of schools have been destroyed and hundreds others closed down that the army thinks about protecting them had they conducted their operations here properly this situation would not have arisen unquote so she writes that about a month after she wrote her first entry was the one i uh, had read just a minute ago and you can tell the frustration in her writing uh the taliban had at this point their edict restricted any girls from going to school at all so only boys were going to school um in solidarity some of the private boys schools then would close themselves down to support uh the women or the girls not being allowed to go to school uh, eventually the taliban lifts the ban on girls going to school but only allows them to co-ed with the boys they would still not allow the girls only schools and then eventually in february uh they allow the girls to go back to school like they but they had to wear burqas so something that had previously not been part of the culture in the area was now being sort of enforced um as part of it well eventually the the girls schools reopen uh, attendance in her class is up to 19 out of 27 people, so not all the way there, but definitely improving. But the Taliban was still active in the area. They were still so. This isn't to say that the Taliban ruled the area. Now we're still in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. So there are things going on, but you have to remember we're in a really remote, mountainous type of region. Where I mean, you think about it, it's it's tough to think about in terms that most of my listeners would understand. Now, the vast, vast, vast majority of my listeners are uh, United States-based. Now, I know I have some foreign listeners as well. Thank you, by the way, foreign listeners from every other country on Earth who has downloaded the podcast. Uh, welcome, by the way. Um, for, but for most people, and for myself especially, the speaker, you think about it in a certain way. You think about how could this happen, you know? How could this be a thing? Why doesn't the government of that country... Uh, interfere? Why isn't that? Why is this happening? Why is there no, you know, comeuppance or anything? And you have to remember, this is a less, you know, there's less influence by these national governments in the area, and especially in this really remote, poor area in northern Pakistan near the Afghani border. You know, the Taliban doesn't rule the area per se. But they're there. They have, you know, influence there. They are a force there. So, I mean, basically the way they were, in, they were, you know, enforcing their edict that they put out was by fucking blowing schools up and saying, hey, you can't go to school here because look what we just did. We just blew up all these goddamn schools. So, hey, if you're a girl, sorry to say it, but you're not going to be able to go to school. But it's not like it's the law of the land. So over time, you know... Taliban influence will wax and wane back and forth, up and down, and eventually some of these people, like Malala, were allowed to go back to school, and like I said, about 19 of 27 pupils in uh, March were back in her class again, although 
as she says, people are again scared that the peace may not last for long. Some people are saying that the peace agreement is not permanent and it is just a break in fighting, which turns out was exactly correct. So it's kind of this unstable peace. And all this is happening with this little 11, you know, 12 year old girl, Malala, who is blogging about it, being sort of put on the national stage and even eventually on the international stage to talk about these things. I mean, what kind of pressure does that put? on a kid who's not even a teenager yet. It, it's it's crazy to think about. This eventually inspires her uh, to become what she becomes today. She wanted to become an activist and a politician because of what she's been seeing and what she's been experiencing around in her area. Originally, she wanted to become a doctor, a very noble cause in and of itself, to want to help those who are ill and sick and who can't help themselves. But then she kind of understands her gift for for oration much much better than my own gift for oration personally she understands what she has and she gets this kind of this fire inside of her now in the swat region uh, eventually like i was saying before you know with the pakistani government and the taliban and stuff the pakistani government eventually sends troops up to the region and they fight the taliban off and you know push them out of the swat valley where they live now during the time uh, Malala Yousafzai and her uh, her father and the rest of her family became displaced people. They became refugees for a little bit of, of time before they were able to move back in. Um, her dad was uh, an activist this entire time. So she herself, Malala, is writing for uh, the BBC's, you know, Urdu region as a blog. And by this time, that blog had been discontinued because of the fighting and stuff. But... She had been doing this blog, and her father had also been doing activism, and he becomes sort of a leader in this grassroots grassroots activism in the region, wanting to push the Taliban out and actually gets as far as being given a death threat over the radio by the Taliban commander at the time. So Malala then becomes deeply inspired in her own activism by her father's activism, and then she decides to you know do what she's going to do and become a politician. She then writes... Uh, later on, quote, I have a new dream. I must be a politician to save this country. There are so many crises in our country. I want to remove these crises. I mean, it's an extremely mature and almost uh, crazy to think about attitude and response in this just 12, 13-year-old at this point girl to want to do so much good in life that a lot of people take for granted when you're from a region that isn't you know, torn open with strife and war and fighting and certain classes of people or genders of people being put in certain boxes and places because of the way they are, you know. So those of us, we take that sort of uh, thing for granted. But, you know, Malala at, at a young 12 years old at the time was already thinking, you know, in the future, you know, in future tense, wanting to be the type of person who could grow up and be an activist and change the world. And now at this point, people are becoming extremely impressed with her her public speaking ability and her attitude and her general fire for what she believed in, which is primarily that girls especially, but everyone should have 
access to quality education wherever they go, and it shouldn't be taken away from them. She's eventually noticed by um, the National Pashto Language Station, AVT Khyber, the Urdu Language Daily Aj, and Canada's Toronto Star. She also makes an appearance on Capital Talk in 2009 as well. And during all of this, you start to see that people put two and two together, and the, the, the pseudonym that she was using for the BBC blog earlier is now, people are now figuring out that, oh, this is that girl. This is her right now. So it's a it's a good thing for her public profile, which is also a bad thing because people who are a little bit less than nice about what she's wanting to do are now starting to find out who she is, and it's it's not a great situation. Um, her public profile continues to rise though this entire time through two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and two thousand and eleven into twenty twelve where in 2011, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa nominates her for the International Children's Peace Prize, um, also for the Dutch International Children's Advocacy Group. Um, She's also nominated uh, for the National Youth Peace Prize later in December. She is the first Pakistani girl to be nominated for that. And she continues to, to, to go on and with her activism. You know, she's been nominated for awards. The Prime Minister of uh, Pakistan... At the point is also uh, helping her out by, you know, setting up an IT campus in the SWAT area for women at Malala's request. There's a secondary school renamed in that area of of Malala in her honor. And then in 2012, she's now planning to organize the what she calls the the Malala Education Foundation, which would help poor girls go to school. So everything's going really great, right? No, no, no sentence ever starts. Hey, everything's going really great, right? That ends well. So in the most unfortunate part of our story, the most awful thing that can happen, she is uh, eventually threatened a bunch of times, mostly by newspaper where death threats against Malala would be created in these newspapers and then they would be shoved under her door and kind of as an intimidation tactic, mostly as a, hey, stop talking stop saying bad stuff about you know us the Taliban and you know stop parroting for female education just be quiet be quiet or we're gonna kill you da, 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 da. they do that um, she's an active Facebook user Malala is and then other people start creating fake profiles under her name to sort of try to discredit her um, eventually I mean she's a tough she's a tough cookie because none of that stuff really forces her to stop she doesn't stop doing what she's doing. So in 2012, in the summer of 2012, the Taliban agrees unanimously that they have to kill her. Now, what kind of fucking pussy-ass organization are you where, like, a 13, 12 or 13-year-old girl is something to you? And at this point, it's 2012, so she's now uh, uh, 15 years old. What kind of organization where a, a, a teen girl is so threatening to you that you just have to kill her. I mean, I just can't even imagine how bitch of an organization you have to be to be like, "Oh god, this 15-year-old girl, she's really saying some she's really saying some shit, man. This is this this bullshit. This is mean. I think we have to kill her." What? 
okay, so there you go. There's my opinion on the Taliban. They got so riled up by a, a teenage girl speaking, you know, about the right for education that they decided they wanted to kill her. So in October, on October 9th of 2012, a Taliban gunman came onto a bus that Malala was riding on, and he screams, which one of you is Malala? Speak up, otherwise I will shoot all of you. And then, you know, she eventually is... She's eventually identified on the bus, and he brings his gun up, and he shoots her. He hits her um, right in the uh, right through her head, neck, and it ends up in her shoulder, the bullet. Two other girls were also wounded in the shooting, but they weren't wounded nearly as terribly as poor Malala was. She is then immediately shipped off and airlifted to a hospital in Peshawar, where doctors uh, were forced to begin operating after swelling develops. Now, she's basically shot from a seated position um, from a gunman who was a lot taller than her, obviously, standing up, shooting down. So the bullet went in through her head, through her head, through her, uh, you know, the neck, towards the back, and then sort of uh, lodges itself in a shoulder area near her, her spinal cord. So that's that's where the, the toughness, you know, in this whole entire thing was. If, if the shot doesn't instantly kill her, which, by the way, it did not kill her at all, then you have the risk for any sort of damage done uh, in the spinal cord, which could limit her ability to do literally any motor or sensory function. Um, and at the same time, you have a risk for infection because a dirty, nasty bullet has then traveled through you, opened you up to the world of everything, and it's not a good situation. And then you also have the issue of you also have the issue of uh, too much swelling on the brain because there is bleeding, there is inflammation that is going to happen because of the damage you've done in the brain. So the doctors at this first military hospital do a, uh, a five-hour operation where they do remove the bullet that gets, you know, that was in her shoulder near her spinal cord. They are able to get it out. Then they have to perform a decompressive craniotomy, which is, you know, taking part of the skull off to allow room for the brain to swell and so they don't have you know, brain damage happening because of the swelling of the brain, which is a pretty common thing with uh, head injuries. They then move her to uh, Rawalpindi, which is in the Punjab region of Pakistan, to uh, the Armed Forces Institute of Cardiology, that hospital there. And then eventually they move her to England, in Birmingham, England, where she's treated at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. This is not before a ton of doctors throughout the world, including the United States, offered to treat her at no expense to her her family at all. They offered to have her come in, and they would do everything they could. They eventually, as I said, settled for a hospital in Birmingham, England, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, where she is treated. Um, one of the specialties of that hospital was the treatment of military personnel injured in conflict, so it seemed like a pretty good match. She was shot on October 9th of 2012. She came out of her coma on October 17th of that same year and responded really well to treatment eventually by the 20th and 21st of that same month she was stable but still battling an infection and by the early part of November she was photographed sitting up in bed and then January of the next year she was finally discharged from the hospital and allowed to continue her rehabilitation at her uh, family's temporary home there in the the area she undergoes a five-hour-long operation on the 2nd of February of 2013 to reconstruct her skull and then restore her hearing with a cochlear implant, after which she was reported to be in stable condition. So all of that bullshit happens because this girl 
is so fervent and adamant about girls and children's access to education that the Taliban decided that they had to end it by shooting her. Now, you can imagine the reaction worldwide in the international community at how this happened. There was an outpouring of sympathy and probably an equal outpouring of anger towards the situation. Just like I, my little mini anger attack earlier in the episode, you know, why would why would this happen? You're so threatened by this 15-year-old girl. You're so threatened by her ideas that she has, by the the mere idea of providing education to anyone makes you so mad, so steamed that you just have to get some poor schmuck gunman up into a bus of children and shoot her and threaten to, by the way, shoot the rest of them too. It's, 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 you know, it was one of those things in the international community that a lot of people were very, very upset about. You know, if you are the type of organization that shuns education, that shuns ideas, then you are on the wrong side of history, in my opinion. Education is only a good thing. Education and knowledge are only good things. You couldn't have this particular podcast without the word knowledge, by the way. So you can imagine that my support for the the ongoing education of of, of these young people is is definitely a positive one for sure. And a lot of the Western world would uh, agree with we in my sentiment. UN Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon called this act a heinous and cowardly one. Uh, President Obama at the time uh, found the attack, quote, reprehensible, disgusting, and tragic. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said that Malala had been very brave in standing up for the rights of girls and that the attackers had been threatened by that kind of empowerment. British Foreign Secretary William Hague called the shooting barbaric and that had shocked Pakistan and the world. She also gets support from Madonna. She gets support from Angelina Jolie. And she's also supported by former First Lady uh, Laura Bush, who wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post where she compared Malala to Holocaust Diary writer Anne Frank. Uh, So you get a lot of positive response. You know, people are thinking kind of the same, along the same lines as I had just been thinking. You know, it's kind of bullshit to shoot a, a young, you know, unarmed, defenseless teen girl who had only been spouting her ideas of what she felt should have been the way of the world. You then get to hear from the Pakistani Taliban division who claimed responsibility for the attack, saying that Malala, quote, is the simple is a symbol of infidels and obscenity, adding that if she survived, the group would then target her again. They then justify it days later, um, saying that she'd been brainwashed by her father. Quote, we warned him several times to stop his daughter from using dirty language against us, but he didn't listen and forced us to take this extreme step. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a, not a good situation, and it just, in, in my opinion, shows weakness on the side of the Taliban where if you're so, if you're so tough and strong, then why do you have to take such extreme measures against a child, basically? So, you know, eventually uh, in her time in England, Gordon Brown, who is the UN Special Envoy for Global Education and former Prime Minister of uh, the UK, visits Malala while she's in the hospital, and he then launches a petition in her name in support of what Malala fought for, in his quotes. Using the slogan, I am Malala, 
This petition demands that there be no child left out of school by 2015 with the hope that girls like Malala everywhere will soon hopefully be going to school. So a lot of really good stuff came from a very unfortunate event. It shows how powerful her message truly was and and how how much she should she could get out of speaking her mind and being an activist and doing what she believed was right. I mean, so powerful to the point where the goddamn Taliban thought that they had to kill her in order to shut her up for something like that. Eventually, Malala goes and speaks, and you can actually see a lot of her speeches on YouTube. If you go in there, you can uh, you can go see her speak. She's an excellent speaker. She's uh, she's very obviously emotionally charged and connected to what she believes in, and she's a very she's a very powerful speaker. Um, she speaks before the UN in July of 2013. Now this is like literally four months after she gets out of the hospital for being shot in the head. Four months later, she's in the UN talking. She also has meetings with Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace. In September, she spoke at Harvard University that year. In October, she met with President Obama to speak about how she was very unhappy about uh, the United States' use of drone strikes in Pakistan, something I very much agree with. Uh, In her talk with President Obama, she said, quote, Innocent victims are killed in these acts, and they lead to resentment among Pakistani people. If we refocus efforts on education, it will make a big impact, unquote. So you can tell that her her fervor for education is the driving force with, with everything that she does. She gets shot in the head, and the minute she wakes up, she's back at it again. She will not be stopped. Uh, on her 16th birthday, on the 12th of July in 2013... Uh, She spoke at the U.N. to call for worldwide access for education. Now, this is her U.N. speech that I was talking about previously. Um, The U.N. then dubbed the event Malala Day, where she then speaks, you know, in front of the U.N., which, by the way, had a a very big audience. And a lot of that audience was 500 or more young education advocates from around the world. She said, quote, the terrorists thought they would change my aims and stop my ambitions, but nothing changed in my life except for this weakness fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. I am not against anyone. Neither am I here to speak in terms of personal revenge against the Taliban or any other terrorist group. I'm here to speak up for the right of education for every child. I want education for the sons and daughters of the Taliban and all terrorists and extremists. She then goes on to say, Malala Day is not my day. Today is the day of every woman, every boy, and every girl who have ever raised their voice for their rights. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's an amazing attitude, an amazing sentiment from a 16-year-old of 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 any you know race, any origin, any 16-year-old to be so utterly amazing and mature absolutely blows my mind. What's why I wanted to do a show on her because she's just absolutely amazing. She's so amazing that later on. Next year, so she gave that speech in July of 2013. In October of 2014, she then becomes uh, the, a 17-year-old Nobel Prize winner, Nobel Peace Prize winner. So she is by far the youngest Nobel Prize winner in history, 17 years old. She goes on to win because of her ongoing and constant activism for education and for peace. She's she's absolutely amazing. And before we we wrap up this episode real quick, I just want to play 
uh, a couple minutes of her interview with John Stewart of The Daily Show just to show everybody in her own voice, one of the things I don't really get to do very often with most of the people I talk about, but I get to show everyone who's listening in her own voice, you know, what makes her so special and, and why her attitude just actually punctures people right into the heart of the matter and why it's so important for her activism to continue as she as she continues, you know, her own education and her own life. So we'll play that clip here uh, real quick before we sum up the episode. Here it is, Malala Yousafzai talking to Jon Stewart in 2013. Uh, I am uh, Malala. It's honestly humbling to meet you. You are 16. Where did your love for education come from? Um, We are human beings, and this is the part of of our human nature, that we don't learn the importance of anything until it's snatched from our hands. And when, in Pakistan, when we were stopped from going to school, at that time, I realized that education is very important, and education is the power for women. And that's why the terrorists are afraid of education. They do not want women to get education because then women would become more powerful. Exactly, exactly right. It's an a, a extremely worthwhile interview to go watch. It's a 16-minute long extended interview from The Daily Show uh, in October of 2013. Just go search Malala Daily Show and you should be able to find it super quick. Um, She's still an activist. She's still making it happen. She currently studies uh, at Oxford in England. She's a 20-year-old college student there, so she is well on her way to an even more successful life than she's already had, which is which is quite amazing considering all the the good she's done and all the awards she's won. Um, not to say that they haven't come at an extreme price. You know, being shot in the head is going to be a, a difficult thing for anyone to deal with at all. So I commend her bravery. I think she was she was so fun to talk about. She's an excellent uh, young woman with with a great head on her shoulders and and a wonderful idea for education worldwide. And that's it. I it's 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 a been a fantastic episode. So in order to now tack ourselves into the next segment, how about we talk about a non sequitur fact of the week maybe? It's back baby. I I remembered from my mistake last week, and I went and got myself a goddamn Snapple, and we're we're back on the Snapple cap fact of the week. By the way, if anyone's listening and has any sort of inroads with the Snapple people, with the Seven Up Corporation, I would <laughs> I would be more than happy to take like a dollar per show, and I'll go buy a goddamn Snapple with that dollar, and I'll pop the cap off and read the fact. It'll be amazing. Somebody somebody figure that out. But real quick. The real fact of the week is Jimmy Carter filed a report for a UFO sighting in 1973, calling it, quote, the darndest thing I've ever seen. There you go. Fucking Snapple Cap. There it is. Snapple Cap fact of the week. And that concludes episode 15 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. 
You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can find me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser. Go to Facebook and search out Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You will find it there where I post the episode every week and usually pictures dedicated to the episodes that I do every single week. You can find this podcast if for some reason you don't know where to find it or if you're trying to tell a friend about the podcast, which I hope you do. You can find it basically everywhere podcasts can be found. If you can find it on Apple Podcasts, you can basically find it everywhere, which you can for this show in particular. Uh, Next week's episode, who knows? Who fucking knows? Like the last probably six or seven in a row, I have not known what I've thought of doing every week. So we're just going to continue that trend because I feel like the best shows I've done have been when I have no clue what I'm going to do until I start doing it. Also, real quick, I just want to give a shout out to DJ Quads, who I've been using big time for a lot of my outro music at the end, and you're going to hear another one of his tunes at the end of the show here. He is an amazing non-copyright artist, so I'm going to link his SoundCloud page if you're interested in the uh, the show notes for this show, and you'll be able to follow it there. You can listen to his other music, but it's it's amazing. It's all got the kind of vibe that I'm into, and... I think it fits in really well with the idea of the show that we have going on right now. So, yeah, huge shout out to that guy because I've used your music for le- literally half of my episodes outro. So that's fantastic. And I just wanted to put him out there to light for people who are interested in hearing the guy who's been basically making quality music for free and carrying my goddamn show every single week at the end of it. So anyhow... After all that being said, guys, thank you so much for listening this week. It's always a pleasure. Next week, who knows? But until then, guys, thanks for listening. I'm out of here.